right, welcome to another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and joining me today is Dr. Chohan with Denver Heart. He's one of our cardiologists here in the Denver metro area. Welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about where you come from, what you like to do, and maybe a hobby, just for shits sure. and grins. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, this, I'm Chirag Chohan, um, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Big Steeler fan. Actually had season tickets up until last year when my dad got sick, but we uh, went to I went to a lot of Steeler games. Um, actually, originally from Pittsburgh, went away to college, worked as an engineer in my previous life. Um, I studied mechanical and biomedical engineering. I ended up uh, working at NASA in Cleveland for about a year and a half. Knew I wanted to go back to medical school. Was just trying to decide if I wanted to stay in um, academics and do MD PhD versus doing an MD. Um, so I took some time off just to see what I enjoyed and didn't enjoy. Ended up just doing my MD at the University of Pittsburgh. So I went back home, um, spent four years there for medical school, uh, then decided to stick around longer and did my internal medicine residency, a chief year cardiology fellowship, and then my interventional first interventional cardiology fellowship there. Ended up um, missing my engineering background, so I ended up uh, spending a couple years during cardiology and interventional cardiology fellowship, doing my master's in uh, bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh, just to get a little brief touch on both sides, because my interests, my hobbies, I guess, are mostly interested in medical devices and medical device development. Um, I actually ended up, um, fortunately, applying to a program at Stanford and left fellowship in 2016 and went out to the Bay Area. So I spent a year and a half at Stanford and in the Bay Area. Um, I went to a program called Biodesign, which is a medical device innovation fellowship for about a year. After that, I started a company. Um, Actually, it was a large bore closure company. So something that kind of is pertinent to our field where we put big holes into arteries and we worry about how to close them. So for example, for transcatheter aortic valve replacements or for impellas, um, we're putting holes into vessels that we hope will close peacefully and easily. So we created a, a, a new technique to do that. And um, my engineer kind of ran with that. I, I, after six months, I decided that I wanted to get back to the clinical world. I missed uh, taking care of patients. And so I ended up moving from uh, San Francisco down to LA, ended up doing my structural heart fellowship at Cedar sinai And then um, my wife brought me to Denver. So uh, she is a an allergist in the area and she trained at National Jewish and really loved Denver. She's originally from Salt Lake. I'm from Pittsburgh, so we wanted to find something in between, and she really wanted to stay closer to home, so we ended up moving to Denver. So I've been here ever since. I've been with Denver Heart for now three and a half years. I love Denver. Um, Just had a baby about 18 months ago, so that's been most of my hobbies recently. Unfortunately, haven't had time to do much besides work and uh, hang out with my son, but hopefully getting back into some of the medical device stuff and obviously trying to endure the the unfortunate down times of the Steelers. Um, but hopefully it will get better. I don't know if Mitch Trubisky is the answer, but we'll see. Well, we'll see. no one's going to replace Roethlisberger, right? That's it, it was the time, for sure. Yeah, it was definitely, it was a couple years past yeah. the time. But yes. Well, you're clearly not a man who gets bored easily. Um, always finding ways to fill the time. That's amazing. I didn't know all that about you. Yeah. Um, a lot of ADD, I think. That's a lot of ADD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, actually. We had, uh, we had a STEMI come in today. Mm-hmm. A crew that was both, uh, both members were fairly new, had never been to the cath lab before, so we were able to go back and kind of watch some of the case, and they were looking at prepping the wrist, 
and comparing that to the old groin puncture and mm -hmm. kind of that transition that we've made to pretty much everyone just trains in the wrist now, even though it's yeah. a little bit more difficult and more tortuous. Is that because of that bleeding factor that you talked about and putting those yeah. big holes in those big vessels? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's this Twitter trend called radial first. Um, so everybody's becoming a radial first operator because it is safer for patients. It's more comfortable for patients. And obviously in a STEMI situation, it's more importantly because of the bleeding and the outcomes. I mean, studies have been shown that the radial access or the, or the wrist access is much better and safer than the groin uh, for multiple reasons. One, the radial, if it's bleeding, you know, because it's a much smaller confined area. If it's bleeding in the groin, depending on where you stick in the groin, so if you go above the inferior epigastric in the common femoral, you could be in a, what we call the retroperitoneal space, which means that the artery is actually diving behind. And if it dies behind and you can't close it, you can honestly bleed out into that space. I mean, you can use you can lose liters and liters of fluid. And, and you'd never know it as a patient. Correct. You get some distension. Right. And, so, and usually it's in the back, so you don't get distension. Oh, you may not get anything. Okay. Um, unfortunately, all you know sometimes is the patient's blood pressure drops, their heart rate increases, and now you're like, they're in hemorrhagic shock and you don't know why. What was the occurrence of that prior to going radial first? Um, I would say, I mean, it wasn't huge. The problem is with the groin in general is we, we, especially for STEMIs, we use a lot of antiplatelets and anticoagulants. Um, you know, in the old days, they used to use uh, P2Y12 inhibitor. I mean, we always use P2Y12 inhibitors, but we used to use uh, 2B3A inhibitors, which are basically really strong antiplatelet agents that have a really high risk of bleeding. So we dealt with a lot of bleeding in the, around the groin, in the groin, hematomas being formed, uh, hematomas and decreased blood, we'll say, uh, decreased, you know, uh, hemoglobin in the body can lead to transfusions, which can lead to reactions, which can lead to bad outcomes for patients. So, unfortunately, uh, there were a lot more bad outcomes from the groin than there were from the wrist. You know, the, the advantage of the wrist, again, is the patient can sit up right after the procedure, which makes breathing easier, especially in these patients. Sometimes, if you have a left-sided STEMI, they can have heart failure and they get fluid in their lungs, so it's nice for them to be able to sit up afterwards so you can help to avoid intubation or anything like that, too. Yeah, it's amazing how well these patients usually do as well. I mean, a couple of days in the hospital and then they're back home and schedule yeah. with cardiac rehab a couple of days later. It's really, really just blows my mind still to this day. These people who are really, really ill. Yeah, I mean, if they if they if they can get in fast enough, and I think the most important piece that I stress to everybody is trying to get in as fast as possible, trying to diagnose it. I mean, I think one of the great things that we've created here in the in the Swedish Rose metro area that we work. Um, is the pre-cardiac alert notifications. I mean, even if it's if you're unsure, 10 to 15 minutes makes a huge difference. I'll tell you that getting a patient into the hospital with the team en route or in the, in the house, it makes it so much easier to get things mobilized and it actually helps the patients because the longer you wait, the more damage that's done and the more damage that's done is the harder it is to recover. Yeah. That yeah, you can't get that back. You can rehab it and strengthen the heart, right? Right. But you, but you may not tissue. get Yep. And that's something that's pretty standard in EMS protocols around for sure in the metro area yeah. here in Denver, but most of the country's adopted that early notification. So dispatch centers will call us and give us that quick heads up so yeah. that we can call you and get you in your car moving if it's after hours. Um, and this for anybody who's listening outside of the metro area or outside of the United States, if, if it's not a practice that you guys are doing, you should absolutely yeah. do that because that time is tissue and that tissue is life. And it, I mean, can't be overstated, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think this this uh, idea has probably been around for the last, I'd say, eight to 10 years. I think before that, we weren't doing as much. I mean, 
the advent of on-site EKG has been huge. The ability to transmit it quickly has been huge. Yeah, I want to interrupt on that, yeah. actually. Um, there are different platforms, different software applications. Some of the EMS patient care reporting systems can actually transmit EKGs to the hospital, and there's always vendors out looking to try to sell you on stuff. How, how valuable is that compared to having a trusting working relationship with your EMS agencies? And I know that we always have fallouts. We still yeah. we do a cardiac alert meeting every month, and we're always looking at those and trying to make yeah. sure that we're not having too many misses, but not overactivating either. And it's a really Correct. delicate balance. So, um, how do you feel about that technology versus the clinical acumen? Well, I think I think two things really um, in that respect. I think obviously, first and foremost, symptoms matter. I mean, patients. It's hard to say the patient's having a STEMI without having chest pain. So when the patient, you know, again, females are a little different than males. Males most commonly present with the typical left-sided crushing chest pain going to the shoulder and the jaw, um, sometimes down the left arm. That's more typical in the male population. The females, it can be to the back, it can be to the right side, but they have to have some sort of, we'll say, pain. We'll call slash, it pain. Yeah, it, pain, is, pain is relative. Is, is it sharp pain? Is it dull pain? You know, that's, that's all relative, but I think they have to have some symptom that makes you think about it. And then obviously the EKG on top of that matters. And I think the more important part is having a, um, a good working relationship because over time I think people understand how people think and what they're looking for because, you know, to me it's very important. And, and again, I stress this even to the emergency department workers, um, you know, whether it's the staff that are the nurses, the staff that are the attendings, staff that are the residents, if you have residents, I mean, all of the people, the, the biggest things that matter, EKGs are only help to help guide you. You have to look at the patient and say, okay, this patient is in distress. I'm worried about this patient. And and that's really what gets me triggered to say, okay, I, I trust that you, you're worried about the patient. Now we got to figure out why that patient is in that in extremis, you know, whether it is a true STEMI or it's something else. I mean, we are working in developing a, a really big shock algorithm um, you know, really citywide, but it, it's been a push nationwide to try to create this shock algorithm to get patients in quickly, to respond quickly, to try to get them the help they need. Because again, we've proven that time is also very important in cardiogenic shock, even if it wasn't for, even if it isn't for ACS. So if it's not for a STEMI or a non-STEMI, and it's for somebody that just has bad LV dysfunction and something tips them over, getting them out of that spiral is very important to do early because often it's once you start circling, it's really hard to get, pull you out of that circle. And that brings up another really good point about when you find that patient who is, who just looks sick, they're gray, they're pale, you can just see it in their eyes. Like any EMS professional who's seen this knows that, right? You know yeah. what that patient looks like. You can Absolutely. see them. But you put them on a 12 lead and it's no elevation. They're not having yeah. a clear STEMI on that. How do you want to hear about that from EMS? What kind of call-in do you want? And do you want to be in that room? Um, you know, if, you're, if, if they have a good story for cardiac, if they look sick in cardiac, yeah. how, do you, how do you want EMS to let you know about that? I mean, I think that's a little bit more difficult because, yeah. again, that relies a lot on, you know, the person seeing the, the patient. And, and certainly know, the ER doc has right, a lot of say in this. Right, story. exactly. And often what they'll do is if there's any concern, I think it's better because, again, there are certain types of heart attacks that you don't see. 
you know, these lateral wall ones, especially the circumflex and obtuse marginal and stuff like that, usually the patient isn't in cardiogenic shock unless they have some other issue. For example, their LED, the artery going down the front of the heart is already occluded. There is what we call a CTO and the circumflex is now backfilling the LED. And now you have this LED Usually you'll see that on the EKG. Sometimes, again, you may not see something. Or if the person's in shock because their mitral valve is leaky and it's because they had a, a lateral wall heart attack and now the, the lateral portion of the mitral valve's not working. Um, but I do think, going back to your question, I, I, I think it's best to involve people early. We can always say, you know what, I'm not that worried about this patient from a cardiac standpoint, but it could be shock from another point. You know, again, it's sometimes hard to discern the difference of people that are really sick from septic shock to a patient that's sick from cardiogenic shock. I mean, if you get enough clamped down um, people, you can get distal extremities to be very cold. You can get people to look ashen and gray. Kind of a Venn diagram, right? right? And some of the same exactly. Symptoms. There are some of the same problems too, right? Correct. And again, it's it's not you know it's not easy sometimes even you know for skilled clinicians that have been in practice for forty years to to get the difference. I mean, you know, I've only been in practice for three and a half years and. There obviously, as you said, there are some EMS providers that have been in practice for one month or two months. It's it's hard to know what we're dealing with sometimes, and it's always better to get more eyes on a problem to help figure it out than less. Well, I'm thinking about the septic shock patient too. What we've been doing lately is we've always thought about you know door to needle, door to balloon. Now we're yep. thinking about door to antibiotics and how important that is Completely for those patients because we know when they're sick they need early intervention. So absolutely. So that's absolutely awesome. anything you get in early. I mean the faster we can get to the closest hospital that we can get good care from, that's the most important piece. And so when we're taking care of, let's go back to the classic STEMI patient, right? Yeah. We've got tombstones and 2-3 AVF. Okay. Um, patient's probably gonna go to the cath lab pretty quick. Yeah. What are the priorities that you wanna see completed when they come to the ER? What kind of lines do you want? How big, where do you want them? Yeah. Um, and then what kind of meds do you wanna have on board for someone who's having you know, 10 out of 10 crushing chest pain, their blood pressure's maybe a little bit soft, but they're still, you know, 110, 60. 60. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, and obviously the most important, is aspirin up front. I'm hoping at the, at, by the time the patient is seen and when they have the chest pain, or if they do it on their own, a lot of patients will just chew aspirin when they have it. Yeah, yeah but dispatch aspirin, centers are great about that. They right. tell them to do it. Do right? it, right. And aspirin <laughs> is, to me, the most important piece. And, and the reason that that matters is because the sooner you get aspirin, the sooner it starts working, the less we'll say there's there's a couple things. One, they may have some reflow, so meaning they'll have blood flow past the lesion. So the, the way these STEMIs work in general, as people probably know, is the wall of the artery usually has like a 30, 40% plaque. That plaque then becomes unstable. It has a covering over top of it called the thin fibers cap. That breaks open. If it breaks open in a STEMI, something triggers it to break open. The, the plaque inside gets out into the bloodstream. The body sees that as a foreign object and clots it off. And while it's clotting it off, it's also clotting off the vessel because all that thrombus or blood clot that forms there basically decreases blood flow downstream, which is what triggers the heart attack. I mean, the ST elevations. The, the, the elevation, the pain. Right, the pain, yeah. exactly. There's not enough blood flow. And when that happens, the biggest thing trying that you're trying to do is open up that vessel so that some blood flow gets downstream. So aspirin definitely helps. Heparin, obviously, is something that we talked about. And recently, we're instituting um, into all of our hospitals that we cover a preload algorithm. Preloading meaning with either Plavix or Berlinta, ideally Berlinta because of time that it, it works. 
Um, and the reason for all of this also is because studies have shown if you can preload patients, they do better from something we call no reflow. So what no reflow is, is when we go and try to open a vessel, we put a wire past the blockage or through the blockage. We then balloon it open. Unfortunately, that thrombus is still there. It has to go somewhere. And where it goes? Downstream. So when you stent it, finally, that stent opens, but a lot of that thrombus is still on the walls. It cheese grates. I mean, it literally looks like a cheese grater. It goes through the stent into the bloodstream and goes downstream and now claws off distal vessels. So if you think of the vessel, it has to have an inflow and an outflow. Inflow is the blood coming into the artery. The problem with outflow is all these small plaques or clots basically clog up that distal stuff and that distal clogging doesn't allow blood flow to get downstream. And now you could put a new stent in, but you may not have any blood flow down the artery because there's nowhere for that blood to go. And so what preloading has shown is that preloading definitely decreases the risk of no reflow. Putting on the aspirin early, getting the, the thrombol, I mean, anything you need to early is the best. Eventually, we may have to put in more aggressive thrombolytics. So sometimes we have to give TPA into the coronaries. Sometimes we have to give these... G23BA inhibitors, which we, or, uh, which we talked a little bit about earlier, which are the basically um, antiplatelets, uh, they're IV antiplatelets, and then obviously getting heparin on board. Those are very important. So I think all those things are important in terms of the actual anticoagulation, antiplatelet cascade. The other part of that question was the blood pressure. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than, you know, give X, Y, and Z, the big thing is obviously you want to make sure that the patient is perfusing. So you want to make sure that they're mentating okay, that they're doing well. If they're not, then pressors are very important. Ideally, phenylephrine is not the best choice for them because you're adding extra stress to the heart. About, I know the rigs have... So in a person like this, I mean, we always talk about in the field is like the last thing you want to do for someone who's already got unstable cardiac tissues, give them epi or something like that. Yeah. We used to have dopamine. We don't really have that anymore. Right. Um, fluids is really kind of our best option. Yeah, and then how far do you try with fluids before you say, hey, "Man, I really have to switch gears here and get more aggressive." Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it's unreasonable to try a bolus, you know, two fifty, five hundred. Even if it's a a big one, you can try a bolus and see. I mean, obviously, all the EMS providers are skilled to be able to control the airway. So if there's any concern and they start getting worsening heart failure, we know we're we're running into a brick wall and we have to do something different. But I think giving pressors up front, especially with those inferior STEMIs, if you see 2-3 in AVF, you always have to consider an RV infarct. Um, again, the RV infarct is a little bit more complicated, but the reason that it's important is the RV is a little different than the LV. It needs to fill the LV, so you need to pump in fluid. So if you see somebody that has 2-3 in AVF and they're hypotensive, the first thing to do is just start giving them fluid. The ones and, that, and that's the, the preload, right? Correct, preload. That's what we giving talk about them, right, all the time. Right, and avoid nitroglycerin in yeah. that case. If you see 2-3 in AVF and you're concerned about ST depressions and 1-2-3, uh, V1, V2, V3, then you need to be concerned about an, uh, an RV infarct. If that's the case and the patient looks sick, fluids, 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 and then pressors. That's the way to treat that. If somebody has an anterior wall infarct, so V1, V2, V3, those patients can be the ones that get very sick very quickly, and those are the ones that you may need to put on the epi, et cetera, or could arrest. Yeah. Uh, again, any of them can arrest from arrhythmia, <laughs> but I'm saying more from a uh, hypotensive episode. And, and so to rewind a little bit, I want to ask about the Berlanta a little bit. Yes. So for some of our more like the critical care crews or the interfacility crews, yeah. 
they're coming from either rural areas or from a freestanding ER or something like that to get to a cath mm -hmm. lab. They've, the patient has gotten some Berlanta. What does, does the crew need to know or be concerned about with that? Because that's not a typical med that we deal with. Yeah. So um, any risks or Again, the biggest contraindications, risk, interactions? No, not, not really from a medical standpoint. Not too many contraindications. Um, the reason we choose Berlanta over something like Prasigrel, Prasigrel has risk factors. You can't give it over a certain age. You shouldn't give it to patients with a stroke or a TIA. And, and you theoretically should be able to see what you're dealing with before giving the uh, uh, Prasigrel, the effiant. And so I, I, we try to take it out of people's hands to think about those kind of things. Because you're moving so quick. You're trying to do everything you know, thinking about when to give Prasigrel, when to give Berlinta, when to give Plavix. The problem with Plavix is it's just too slow. It works well. It was the only thing we had for a long time, but it's just slower than the Effiant and the and the Ticagrelor or the Berlinta. So I, I said Ticagrelor, 180 milligrams is a loading dose. Um, things to look for is just bleeding. I mean, it's basically aspirin on steroids, if you will, in some <laughs> ways. I mean, it's just a really hefty dose of aspirin. Okay. Uh, it's a very profound antiplatelet so if you cut somebody it's going to bleed and you're going to have to hold pressure all right so I mean, then on that point yeah you're getting another line on this patient you're yeah. concerned you want to have a secondary line yeah you miss it just have to hold pressure Lots it's of pressure. not it's not i mean it's not like heparin where it's okay. going to continue to bleed okay it's a, so the way in general the, pl the platelets work is the platelets are usually the first things to go to a, a uh, an area that's bleeding and they create a scaffold and if, what these are doing is they make the platelets inactive, so they can't work as well. So you just have to hold for a little bit until you can get enough to start the clotting cascade. Once the platelets get there and they start the scaffold, all the other factors will get there and start finishing off the clotting cascade to give you the hemostasis. So again, you know, people that usually take Plavix or Belinta or Prasigrel for longer term, they know they get the bruising. And those are usually small bruises. They're not big cuts. Sometimes you cut yourself, it may bleed for a little bit longer, but it's not like heparin, which is continuously on. So the thing to be worried about, if you're coming from afar, a lot of these patients also get bolses. Like, for example, sometimes when we get the patients from Southwest ER, I tell them to bolus at Southwest ER with heparin, with, with Berlinta if we can, and the aspirin, getting all three of those on board, that patient is going to bleed. Yeah. That's for sure. So you're going to have to be careful, but it, it, it's what they need. Yeah, you know? so keep your eyes peeled for bleeding. Correct. Drive fast. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we call that high-flow high diesel therapy, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so do you have a preference on, on IV access, where that's obtained, what the size is? Is there anything more beneficial? No, I mean, obviously, bigger is better. That's pretty much everything. I mean... I know recently, um, at least from what I've been seeing, IO access has made a comeback, which is mm -hmm. great. I mean, it's a fantastic access point. Obviously, if you can get in large bore IVs, a lot of times you can't. These people are pretty sick, especially the ones that have pressures in the you know hundreds or less. It's very difficult to, to get in. I mean, infraveins are so shrunk down. That's why we're giving them, if you get in anything, you can get in, get some fluid, and then we yeah, can help out. Because they're starting that. to clamp down. Correct. The heart's upset, so they're trying to send they're more to blood send more to that heart, clamp exactly. down the extra. And so they make everything smaller. And again, I know How we're not sticking. EJs? Is that yeah, good, I'm, bad, I'm ugly? completely, completely yeah. okay yeah. with it. Again, the biggest risk with all these things are if you miss, it always puts you at risk for bleeding, especially after the fact, because once they come to the cath lab, as soon as we get access, we usually give you know, 5,000, 7,000, 10,000 bolus of heparin, you, we have to just be extra worried and cautious about it. Um, but in general, as long as you can get in some IV access to be able to give the drugs that they need, that's the most important piece. Even if it's small, because once they come to the cath lab, I can always throw in a, a, a groin line or something quick and be able to give them 
fluids or anything I need, pressors, etc. But I think the biggest thing is making sure that they're stable. So, you know, if people like IO access, I'm completely for it. Yeah, whatever you can get, get it. Correct. Avoid the right radial. Correct. Anywhere on the right arm uh, below the elbow would be ideal. So I, I think that's the most important piece of all of it. I think, you know, you have to, you have to watch for the back of the hand specifically on the right arm and the lower forearm. I think those are the two places that I'd be worried about the most just because it can play a little bit of a role where we're going to get access and unfortunately, but, but again, if you have to get access on the back of the hand because that's where you can get it, I say that's more important than worrying about us because I can get access up in the brachial, I can get access in the ulnar, I can get access in the groin. I'm okay with that. I just need I just need the patient to be stable to yeah. get there. Well, that works out well because for the most part, EMS providers are sitting on the patient's left side. Left so side. if they've got great access on that left side, get a line or two. Um, Absolutely. If you have to give different meds, if the patient cores and you have to then end up giving some epi and maybe you go down mag, you go some calcium, you don't want to mix those. So you yeah. get two. We get two. Great. Yeah. Do it. Two, two large bore IVs are always preferred, but whatever we can get, we get. I mean, I, we take because, again, the most important part is getting their, them to the hospital in stable so they can actually possible. get to the cath lab, Correct. right? Correct. Um, so how about nitroglycerin? I've, yes. I've had a lot of questions from paramedics and EMTs yeah. alike about nitro, wondering really what is the true benefit of nitro and why would we use that when there is a risk of dropping that preload, of putting that patient at greater yeah. risk when we could do something like a little bit of fentanyl to help their pain. Is there a true benefit to use that and in which cases? So I think that nitroglycerin has its role. Um, I think that anybody that has an anterior or lateral STEMI with elevated blood pressures are fine to get nitroglycerin. The concern I have is one big piece. It's hard, especially in males, to know if somebody's on a PDE5. So if they take Viagra, yeah. Cialis. They don't like to talk and, about it. And they don't like to talk. They won't yeah. tell you right up. And again, when they're in pain, they're not thinking as much. But if somebody's taken it within 24 hours, their risk of bottoming, bottoming out their pressures is extremely high because of the reaction and the way that nitroglycerin profoundly vasodilates in those patients and can really drop your, I mean, your blood pressure can go into the 40s. And I've seen it happen when you don't know that somebody's taking, you know, any of those agents, especially the stronger ones now, Cialis and some of the other ones, if you give them nitroglycerin on top of it, especially if it's been recent, you know, again, there are people that trigger uh, during intercourse. They have intercourse, they have a STEMI, and, you know, they may have taken one of these drugs, and now you're thinking about whether to give nitroglycerin. At that point, I think in my mind, I would say, let's try fentanyl or something else because it's less vasodilatory. It does help with pain control, but pain is important. I mean, the problem with having pain is that your blood pressure goes up, and now you're in this cascade. Blood pressure going up, pain gets worse. Blood pressure going up, chest pain gets worse because you're now making the heart pump against the harder, so it has to pour harder, and it becomes this vicious cycle. So in those cases, especially, you know, again, the only time I would not consider nitroglycerin, uh, besides obviously in, in the patients that have, um, you know, any of those PD-5s, uh, you know, Vi Viagra, Cialis, I think there's another new one, I can't remember, Tadalafil is Cialis' generic name. Um, I can't remember it. I'll think of it. Homework project. Right? Yeah, and then there's a, and then obviously the the ones with the inferior post, in, uh, sorry, the right RV infarcts, because as we talked about, the preload is very important in the RV infarct. So patients that have L ST elevations inferiorly and those prototypical ST depressions 
V1, V2, V3, or V2, V3 mostly, you worry about the RV infarct, those patients I would definitely, and then again, uh, you have to worry about blood pressure, as you know, it's a vasodilator, it drops your preload, it drops your blood pressure, that can be a, a problem because you can't perfuse as well if you have a low blood pressure, because if you remember, the, the coronaries perfuse in diastole, so when you drop both blood pressures, they don't perfuse as well, and they can have more chest pain and start the vicious cycle again. And it's interesting what you say about the pain, because I think a lot of providers think about like, you know, pain's not going to kill you, right? Pain, that's just part of it. It's good to feel pain. It's important for your body. But also, like you said, it creates this, this cycle. vicious cycle where yeah. it can make that patient worse. Because often not. you'll see their blood pressures are up, right? Because you're like, oh, the blood pressure's through the roof. It's because of the pain. If you get rid of the pain, their blood pressures may be actually normal to low, but it's the pain that's driving that. And the pain makes the blood pressure go up. The blood pressure makes the heart work harder, the heart working harder makes the STEMI worse, we'll say. So it is very important to deal with the pain, keep yes. a close eye on the blood pressure, Yes, and probably don't give nitro if you don't have access. Yes, for sure. I would definitely yeah. say it's ideal to have access. I mean, again, if a patient has a known history and has nitroglycerin at home, most of this hopefully was taken care of. For example, I won't give nitroglycerin to anybody that gets any of those erectile dysfunction meds from their physicians. Unfortunately, there are a lot of now companies that are giving it, just as you've probably mail, heard of them, right? through yeah. mail. And so you have to just be extra cautious. So I always ask my patients, do you take medications for erectile dysfunction, even if it's quote-unquote, we won't call it over-the-counter because it's not truly over-the-counter, but through uh, mail order, through I think there's a couple different companies that are doing it now. And so you just have to be very cautious because, again, I feel like it's a little bit easier to get those meds, but we have to be cautious because a lot of those patients go home with nitroglycerin. You know, a lot of my chronic anginal patients have nitroglycerin at home as, as bailout, but you always have to be careful because you always wonder if they're taking it together or too close together, there's always a potential for reaction. Yeah, yeah, that's, we always learn about it in EMT school and paramedic school and it's inevitable that people, you know, that's what we say, our patients always lie. lie. Patients yeah. do not. They, they, when you're when you're extremist, yeah. you're you're not, you're not gonna remember everything no. either. And and that's the other problem. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the <laughs> other part I always say. You know, if you're if you're uncertain or if you're concerned, like I said, uh, unfortunately, middle aged to older men, they're higher risk for taking those. And again, it's not that women don't take them, especially women that may have pulmonary hypertension or something. They'll take those drugs because PD fives are one of the first line treatments for patients that have them. But you always want to try to see if you can assess their their over-the-counter meds, their meds. And again, I know it's difficult. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah, yeah. dig through those med cabinets. Make sure you have a decent history before you start throwing meds at any patient. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say these pat the patient is, is on the way to the hospital. They crump, they arrest. Mm -hmm. What are the priorities for you in making that patient? I mean, obviously, we want to get pulses back, yes. right? Number one, we Rosk want to get pulses back. is the most back. important piece, yes. Um, so jump on the chest, we want to do good compressions, yeah. oxygenation. Mm -hmm. Are there any of those cardiac arrest save meds, the epi or, or any of the other ones, amiodarone, stuff like that, that is going to interfere with them having a quick transition into the cath lab yeah. and doing well out of there? No, I, I think I think the most important piece of all of this is ROSC because again, getting to time is heart, time is also brain. The biggest problem with these patients Cardiac arrest, often we can get their heart to wake up. Often their brains don't come together completely, and that's the biggest concern. You know, you have these patients with anoxic brain injuries that you see, and often the, the, the problem is they'll never be the same, and it's always really concerning. And so to us, the most important piece of all of it is 
do whatever you can and whatever is needed to be done, following your ACLs protocols to get the patients back, to regain spontaneous circulation, and obviously to try to keep them stabilized. I agree that often these patients, um, especially the cardiac patients, their primary cause of arrest is usually an arrhythmia, so VT or ventricular fibrillation. So early shocking is important because, again, the longer they stay into an arrhythmia, the harder it is to break them out of it. 300 milligrams of amiodarone IV is a good agent. I mean, that's a push in that case. And, you know, again, none of that is going to hurt us from a cath lab standpoint. To tell us the truth, it may help us because it will help relieve. I mean, we, we see it often in the, in the cath lab when we regain spontaneous flow that sometimes patients will go into VF or VT because they just get a perfusion arrhythmia. And when they do that, you just give them a shock and usually they come too. The hard part is when these patients come to EMS, they don't have perfusion. And if they go into arrhythmia, they may keep going into it. So they may go into incessant VT or VF. So the dousing them with amiodarone is one way to help try to break that vicious cycle and shocking them, obviously, and starting chest compressions to give them perfusion because often VT and VF are, I mean, they don't perfuse the heart and they don't perfuse the brain. And so speaking of ventricular arrhythmias and amiodarone, we used to use a lot of lidocaine. Yes. Transitioned away. It seems like it's kind of coming back. Yeah. Um, in the hospital and in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think lidocaine is a great agent. I think it should be a secondary agent because of its potential risks. I mean, there are some risks with lidocaine. Um, obviously, amiodarone has its own risks. It, it prolongs the QT. It can cause long-term issues with the liver and the thyroid and the, and the pulmonary system. But in general, I think that amiodarone is a little bit more comfortable. To me, in my experience, uh, amiodarone's worked better than lidocaine initially. Uh, I use lidocaine as a second-line agent, so if amio is not working, lidocaine can be added, and, and it's a good agent, especially with a bolus. Does it seem to work best when it's piggybacked on top of the amio, or is it... That I've seen. Now, again, I, I don't deal as much with arrhythmias outside of the... Or I deal with most of my arrhythmias in the setting of cardiac arrest and <laughs> heart attacks, whereas somebody like one of my partners, Dr. Wong, or... Dr. Steve's the EP doctors, they deal with it a little bit more from a, a different standpoint. They're dealing with scar-based arrhythmia, which, you know, the patient may have had a heart attack or have some other reason to have a re-entrant tachycardia, which is ventricular tachycardia. And in that case, they have some algorithms that they consider for amio versus lidocaine. But again, to me, it's whatever you have available and whatever you can get in quickly to help prevent any more arrhythmias from happening. Because again, once it triggers, sometimes it may continuously trigger. And the reason it's happening is because when you have cells dying, you have areas that are hyperactive, and usually those areas will cause little re-entrant tachycardias that can create the ventricular tachycardia. And VF is usually just breakdown of ventricular tachycardia. It happens to ventricular tachycardia, and then it just kind of degenerates into VF. we got to be wrapping up pretty soon. I know you've got other appointments today. I would love to do another talk, but before we end, I want to ask your opinion on some of the assist devices for CPR, like yeah, the Lucas, Lucas or the Auto Pulse or any of the other ones. I, I trialed some of them when they were early in the field. Yeah. We have some in our ER. I see mm -hmm. some of the EMS agencies use them regularly. Some did not. And I know that some of the data is is not crystal clear about no, are right. they better or worse? How do you feel about them just personally? I personally like them. I've, you know, where I practiced, you know, in California and back... I think they've been helpful for a lot of patients for multiple reasons. One, as you all know, doing CPR effectively is extremely exhausting. Yeah. I mean, it the, is... The last time I did a class, yeah. 
I was supposed to be doing it for two minutes and they were keeping an eye on me and within 30 seconds I was you exhausted. Like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, doing it more than a minute is, is to, to do it effectively for more than a minute is impossible in my mind because again, you're thinking about so many things, your body is revved up, you're trying to push yourself to do it fast and you know, everybody talks about uh, the song that you should be humming and <laughs> making sure you're on pace, etc. And you're thinking about so many things, but you're also expending a lot of energy. And the, the issue is to do it on the field, you need multiple people. And often you're, you don't have that. You have two providers, maybe even one provider, trying to do it. And the problem is it's not always that effective. Whereas the Lucas machine or one of the other autopilots, they, they, they allow you to take a break, sit back. Again, the most important piece of all of it is you know, repetition, putting it in the right place, doing it on practice runs, doing it quickly, how to set it up, having everything available. And again, I'll tell you that it, it works wonders. I mean, we've had lots of patients that have been coding for 30 plus minutes. Imagine how much struggle that is to, to have somebody doing it 30 minutes effectively. The advantage of this is it really doesn't care if it feels, and I'll tell you, you're not doing good at CPR unless you're breaking ribs, it's true. But if you put a machine on, they think about it less when they're doing the the CPR it because they soften know up when it right. feels the ribs break. Right, exactly. They know they know that <laughs> it need, it needs to be done to be able to get the impact that it, it it needs. And I think those devices again, I think the data is mixed because a lot of the data is is hard to do in a emergent situation, yeah. an emergent setting because again you're struggling to get things going quickly. You're trying to get everything figured out, and it's just it's a little bit more difficult. I, I personally don't, I haven't seen a lot, of, a lot of the data, but in my experience, it's been great for multiple reasons. The other advantage is you can actually sometimes use it in the cath lab table. We've had to do that before and you can still do the cath with it going. There's not a person around the, you know, the II, you're not getting radiation. So it is an advantage in some ways. So a lot of cath labs actually will have it they can continue doing CPR while still working on the, the arteries to try to see if we can help them. That's amazing. And that's what I've noticed in, in my experience as well is that it just, it mellows out the entire cardiac arrest event. Yes. It gives all the providers a chance to really use their brains and think much more clearly about the H's and T's and, yep. all right, how many rounds in it? How long has it been? It just takes that that escalation stress. and that elevation and that stress out of it to a huge degree. I mean, because you have to think about it. To do it effectively, I think three or four providers are already being used for that. Now you have less hands to do things depending on, you know, where you are, what time of day it is, you know, the, all that information. So I think having to not worry about that, you have a lot more resources at your disposal to be able to treat that patient effectively and hopefully get them through the event. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so, so much for your time today. No Any final words or thoughts for the audience? No, I, you know, I, I, I love this idea. I think it's fantastic. Obviously, I, I think there are a lot of things to share, a lot of different parts from at least a cardiac standpoint. And, and I know you could do this pretty much in every field because there are a lot of interesting things to talk about, you know, whether it's DKA for, you know, ICU slash endocrinologist, if you talk about you know, trauma, etc. You can always talk about so many cool topics that, again, we as inpatient providers don't get to see. You know, we see certain amounts. Obviously, I remember my rotations as an emergency medicine uh, resident slash my, you know, my sister's an emergency medicine resident or a, a physician um, in the East Coast. And, 
you know, I get to hear so many cool stories about things coming in that we never see because they don't have any cardiac uh, overlap. And so, you know, it's, it's really cool to be able to listen to these talks to hear, you know, what other people out there are doing. Um, obviously, I, I learn a lot from that. I think it's also interesting to hear kind of what new technologies are out there. And again, with my idea of being a medical device innovation type of person, I'm always thinking about what are the cool things we can create to help, you know, patients through all these tough times and trying to get them through, you know, cardiac arrests, heart attacks, etc. So uh, I love feedback. If anybody has any other thoughts, if, you know, I'm happy to come back. If anybody has anything else they want to hear about, either whether it's valvular issues or shock or any type of, you know, other etiologies. Um, I'd be happy to talk about that. I, I do have an interest in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and obviously in, in the setting of heart attacks. So uh, that's one of my real big interests and I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it every day. So, Well, I think we have at least three more topics that we can yeah. cover then in three cool. more episodes. And so awesome. if there's anything outside of those that anybody's interested in, questions about this, topics you want us to cover, jump on the website, shoot an email over and, and let us know what you want to learn about because... Uh, I love being a conduit for this and, and asking those questions. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. And thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Yeah, thank Shrek. you. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Health One Continental Division and Swedish Medical Center for their financial contributions to the EMM. Donations from them and listeners like you make it possible for us to fulfill our mission of producing and spreading free medical education to the masses. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a one-time or reoccurring donation to help cover our operational costs and keep the EMM awesome. Click on the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening.